Ladies and gentlemen, damas y caballeros, welcome to Siempre Palante. Welcome, mi gente, to Siempre Palante, Always Forward, a podcast that is culture-driven, focused on familia, overcoming adversity, and legacy. I'm your host, Girado Luis Alvarez. Gracias for listening. In this episode, you will hear stories about Negro Leagues baseball, the bond shared by Black and Latino players, and how countries outside the U.S. embrace them. Key family values learned in Crawfordville, Georgia, provided the foundation to our guest today. This helped him lead and persevere through 2020. Get ready to hear storytelling at its finest. I introduce to you, president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, Bob Kendrick. First of all, Mr. Kendrick, thank you. Thank you for being on. This is a monumental episode in Siempre Palante. I'm really excited for all the listeners to hear from you. What is the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum? The Negro Leagues Baseball Museum is the world's only museum dedicated to solely preserving the rich history and heritage of Black baseball and its profound impact on the social advancement of America. And quite frankly, it may be that latter statement that grabs the hearts, the minds, the imaginations of now the thousands of people who come to see us each and every year. I truly believe that the work that we've done over the last now almost 31 years that people come here expecting to meet some pretty good baseball players. And of course, you're going to leave not being disappointed. By the time you walk out of here, you will have met some of the greatest athletes to ever put on a baseball uniform. But also by the time you walk away from this experience, I think you walk away with a much deeper, richer appreciation for the contributions that they've made, not only to advance our sport, but to advance this country for the better. And it's all a part of this incredible story of these strong-willed athletes who, when it was all said and done, they just wanted to play ball. They had no idea they were making history. They didn't care about making history. They just wanted to play ball. But their love of this game would not only change our game, it changed this country for the better. And that story is beautifully brought to life here at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. That's a beautiful, beautiful explanation. And I want to get into a little bit about the Black and Latino connection. Because the Black and Latino brothers were together, united, and they were making some things happen that a lot of people are not aware of. But can you share some of those stories? Tremendous brotherhood. I mean, a beautiful bond that baseball brought us together. As I so proudly tell my guests here at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, American-born Negro League players were some of the first Americans to play in many Spanish-speaking countries. And when they went to those countries, man, they were celebrated. They were treated like heroes. So they're staying in the finest hotels that those countries had to offer. They're eating in the finest restaurants that those countries had to offer. And then you come back home and you'll be treated like a second-class citizen. So as a result, a lot of those players would eventually call those Spanish-speaking countries home for one simple reason. In those countries, they weren't Black baseball players. Man, they were just baseball players. That's all they ever wanted to be. In this country, the dark-skinned Spanish-speaking athlete in particular couldn't play in the major leagues either. 
So they found sanctuary playing in the Negro Leagues. So when Jackie Robinson breaks the color barrier, he doesn't do it for just American-born Blacks. He does it for every player of color who now enjoys this game. But this union, this unique brotherhood, this relationship that was bonded by baseball, or in this case, baseball, it was special and it is something that we celebrate. One of my favorite exhibits, we have a traveling exhibition called Negro Leagues Baseball. And it celebrates that little known, but again, very profound connection between the Negro Leagues and Spanish-speaking countries. And this exhibit is written bilingually. So it is written in both English and Spanish to help now bridge that gap. There should not be a divide between Black folks and Spanish-speaking people of any descent because we have a shared history. And it's a very special history. And we're very proud to bring that connection to light. We tout that story as a central part of the story of the Negro Leagues because it is just that, a very important part of this overall story. I couldn't agree more, Mr. Kendrick. And one of the things that through your stories, I've learned a lot and grateful for Black Diamonds and storied and countless podcast projects you've been on. There's some stories you've shared about how the Negro League players were some of the first to bring baseball to Spanish-speaking countries, right? To Latin America, to Japan. Shed some light on that. They were road warriors. Literally, they were traveling the globe, taking their brand of baseball with them to places that people had no idea that they had been. They would go into Canada. As we mentioned, they were oftentimes the first Americans to play in many Spanish-speaking countries. It was a touring team of Negro League players who would take professional baseball to the Japanese in 1927. And that's years before Babe Ruth and his All-Stars go to Japan. They've been commonly credited with having taken professional baseball to the Japanese. But we look back at a team called the Philadelphia Royal Giants, who would go to Japan in 1927, play a 24-game exhibition series. They go 23-0-1 on the tour. The tour was so successful that several years later, Ruth and his All-Stars would get invited over. But even more so, that tour is really, I think, the spark that opened up professional baseball to the Japanese. And now it is a country where professional baseball is absolutely rabid there. You can point back to that tour and a subsequent tour of the Negro Leagues over there to help usher in all of this heightened interest in professional baseball in Japan. It is a global story. The Negro Leagues helped make our great sport the global game that it is today. And quite frankly, the Negro Leagues didn't care what color you were. Man, all they cared was, can you play? And if you can play, you can play. It was just as simple as that. Yeah, that is a really important part of, I think, why this story is so important. It's such a transcending kind of story. And yet there are so many who had no idea of the magnitude of what this incredible story of triumph over adversity meant both on and off the field. And that's our job is to help bring that story to the forefront so that people can hopefully be enlightened, be inspired, and be educated about this glorious piece of baseball and Americana. 
No, Buck O'Neill talks about going to Cuba for the first time, where he played for Armanderas. And as Buck would describe Cuba as a beautiful country. But as he said, it was Havana when Havana was Havana. Oh, it was jumping. The senoritas were there, beautiful as can be. He's playing baseball. He's young. He's making money playing baseball. And he's in this almost utopia-like environment. It was special to him that time playing in Cuba when Monty Irvin, the great Monty Irvin, said when he went to Mexico to play for the first time, said he never felt more freer in his entire life because it was the first time he felt like he could be his natural self. He could go any place that he wanted to go. He could eat any place that he could afford to eat, stay any place that he could afford to stay. It took them to have to go to other countries just so that they could experience the liberties that they should have been granted in this country. But because of that, it just built this very kindred relationship. And so many Negro League players would call those Spanish-speaking countries home. And they got to perform and showcase their craft to a legion of fans there. One of our prized possessions here is the Puerto Rican Hall of Fame plaque that belonged to a player named Willett Brown. Willett Brown won the Triple Crown in Puerto Rico twice. For the older Puerto Rican baseball fan, he was just as beloved as Roberto Clemente. His nickname in Puerto Rico was Ese Hombre. Yeah, the fans would start chanting when he came to the plate, Ese Hombre, Ese Hombre. And the great Monty Irvin not only played there in Mexico, but also played in Puerto Rico. And he recalls going to Puerto Rico and the adulation of the fans and what that meant to him. One particular player who fell in love with Monty Irvin, this was before he was a player. He was an aspiring player at that time, the great Roberto Clemente. Roberto Clemente Jr. told me that his father idolized Monty Irvin. He wanted to play the game like Monty Irvin. As a matter of fact, he would carry Monty Irvin's uniform to the ballpark. Because if you carried the player's uniform, they let you in in the game for free. And that Monty Irvin gave his father his first real baseball glove. That's who his father wanted to be, was Monty Irvin. After Roberto Clemente tragically dies in that Goodwill mission in the plane accident that took his life, these stories seem to only happen in baseball. Monty Irvin and Roberto Clemente would both be inducted into the Hall of Fame in the same class. Every hero has a hero. There are so many instances where Negro League players were welcomed into those Spanish-speaking countries. It is a celebrated bond here at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. And Mr. Kendrick, you're such an amazing storyteller, and I truly appreciate you telling about the history of the museum. But why is the museum so important to you, Mr. Kendrick? Man, I tell you, it really is because, like most folks, I really didn't know a lot about the history of the Negro Leagues until I got involved with this museum. I considered myself to be a baseball fan. I am a fan of this game. I thought I knew a little bit about the history of this game, 
And then when I got introduced to the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, I quickly realized I didn't know a doggone thing about the history of this game. There was this entire chapter of baseball and Americana that I really had no clue about. I knew the name Satchel Page and Cool Papa Bell, Josh Gibson, because these are transcending names. Most baseball fans have at least heard those names. Even if you didn't know how great they were, you've heard those names. But again, I had no idea about the breadth, the scope, the magnitude of what this history represented both on and off the field. And I literally became engrossed in it. I wanted to learn as much as I could, and I didn't want to keep it to myself. I wanted everybody to feel the same way I felt about it. And so this museum captures this amazing story of triumph over adversity. You won't let me play with you in the major leagues? Okay, I'll create my own league. And then my league will become just as good, some would say even better, than the league that wouldn't let me play. And there's something very American about that spirit. So while it was America that was trying to prevent them from sharing in the joys of her so-called national pastime, it was the American spirit that allowed them to persevere and prevail. That dogged determination that I am not unfit to play this game, and I'll show you. To me, I just fell in love with the story, and I fell in love with the amazing athletes who made this story as I got to meet so many Negro League players through the years, and I was touched and moved by their spirit, this very endearing spirit that they had, particularly for forgiveness, because they would never harbor any hate or ill will in their hearts for anyone who may have attempted to perpetrate something against them as they were trying to play baseball in this country. And I just found that to be an amazing spirit, because truthfully, had they been bitter, Every one of us would have said, you had every right to be bitter. But to a player I've ever met, not one of them have ever harbored any bitterness or expressed anything mean-spirited about anyone as it related to baseball. But then you also have to understand that you couldn't convince them that they weren't playing the best baseball that was being played in this country. Now, the world said the best baseball was being played in the major leagues, but they never believed that. They knew how good they were. They knew how good their league was. And you know what? the major leaguers knew how good they were too. So they were very self-assured about their ability to play this game. Now, did they like the harsh things that were happening to them as they traveled the highways and byways of this country? Of course not. But they wouldn't allow that to harden their hearts with hate. So I think I fell even deeper in love with the story just being around those who had that kind of spirit. And so this museum embodies all of that. When I started here in 1993, it's hard to believe I started as a volunteer here at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Now it's 28 years of affiliation with this organization and an improbable journey when you talk about going from being a volunteer to now trying to lead this great institution. And so it's been an amazing journey for a kid from Crawfordville, Georgia, to have had this opportunity, and it's been a true blessing for me. I sometimes pinch myself because I cannot believe the opportunities that have been presented to me through this work and the incredible people that I've met along this journey, none more so than my dear friend, the late, great John Buck O'Neill, the founder of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, legendary Negro League player, 
and perhaps this game's greatest ambassador. So he was my friend, he was my mentor, and my confidant. I was truly blessed to spend so much time with this amazing human being before he passed away now almost 15 years ago. His spirit, though, is still here. And quite frankly, as long as I've got any say in the matter, his spirit will always be here at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. And now, a word from our host, Giraldo Luis. Did you know, sabias que, the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum was established in 1990 and is located in Kansas City, Missouri's historic 18th and Vine Jazz District. The museum is two blocks away from the Paseo YMCA, where Andrew Vuk Foster established the Negro National League in 1920. One of the many highlights of the museum are bronze sculptures of legendary Negro League players. Satchel Page, Josh Gibson, and Martin Diego are just a few that grace an indoor diamond for all to see. Learn more about the Negro Leagues by checking out the Black Diamonds podcast hosted by Bob Kendrick, Negro Leagues 101, A Global History, and Story. Ya tu sabe. Now back to the show. To take it back, you said Crawfordville, Georgia. Population a little bit over 500. What were some of the early recollections of inspiration, of role models in your family that led you on a path and really you've become the man that you are today? My father, both of my parents. You know, I was blessed to grow up in this rural environment where we didn't really have much means, but I had everything that I needed. Now, I may not have had everything I wanted, but I had everything that I needed. I had two loving parents who provided the foundation that has enabled me to be put on a path for success. They gave me everything that I needed. I'm the youngest of six boys. So I'm the baby of six. They all took care of me. They sheltered me. They made sure that I got the level of education that I needed to be successful in whatever endeavor that I might embark upon and that I had a belief system that would allow me to go out and pursue those opportunities. And so growing up in that environment, which was as humbling an environment as you could ever experience, 500 people, man. Everybody knew you. Everybody had jurisdiction over you. So you couldn't really get in any trouble. And so, you know, if you walked by Mrs. Jones' house and Miss Jones was on the porch and you didn't speak to Miss Jones, by the time you got home, your mother already knew it. Boy, why you didn't speak to Miss Jones? You didn't open up your mouth and say, hello, good evening, how you doing? That was part of the protocol. You were expected to operate in that manner. I'll never forget when I get to college, I leave Georgia to go to college at Park College then. It is now Park University. I started meeting friends and we walked the campus and people would drive by and I would wave. And they were like, well, do you know that person? No, I don't. Then why are you waving? <laughs> you know what? My dad, God rest his soul, he always has done that since as far as I could remember. And I go, Pop, do you know that person? He goes, no. But there's nothing in the book that says you can't be friendly. You can't be friendly to people. <laughs> and they were making me feel bad about being friendly. You know, that's what we did. We waved at you. I can't get on the elevator, see you, and not acknowledge your presence. So needless to say, when we're in New York, and particularly when Buck and I used to be in New York, they knew automatically we weren't from New York because we said hello, good morning to a whole lot of people, as you know, there are a lot of people in New York. And so <laughs> I can't look you dead in your eye 
and not acknowledge your presence. But that's also part of that makeup of growing up in an environment like that. And you're just groomed to be friendly to people. I would not trade my humble beginnings for anything. My children hear the stories all the time. And I'm sure they think it's being exaggerated, like, okay, now. And it really wasn't bad. I enjoyed it. It was such a carefree existence. And it did give me, I think, a tremendous foundation that I still utilize to this day. For me, I still enjoy being around people, meeting people. And I think that was inherently a part of my makeup. And then being around the late, great Buck O'Neill, who also had that. That, along with being around him, some of that spillover effect definitely cascaded on me. And But Crawfordville, Georgia is where it all began. And as the late, great Buck O'Neill would oftentimes joke with me, he says, I'm the only person that he ever met from Georgia that did not claim Atlanta as home. Because you meet somebody in Georgia, they all going to say, well, I'm from Atlanta. Where about? You know, Augusta. Augusta is not Atlanta. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is so true. And listening a little bit about your story in different avenues of media, baseball wasn't the first passion. There was a basketball scholarship involved in Park College. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I always loved baseball. Baseball fans, as I can remember, but my town was just simply too small to field a high school baseball program. So we only had two sports. We had track and field and basketball. Anybody who knows me knows that I do not believe in anything that has you running that didn't have a ball involved with it. So running for the sake of running, uh uh-uh. So track was absolutely out. And so I played high school basketball, was fortunate enough to get a basketball scholarship to my alma mater, Park College, which is now Park University. So I left Crawfordville, Georgia, late summer of 1980, coming to Parkville, Missouri, to attend Park College. I haven't looked back since. I haven't looked back since. I was initially going to Howard University and had gotten accepted to Howard University, but they wanted me to walk on for basketball. They didn't have any money for me. And I was prepared to do that because, heck, I was going to Howard University from the time that I was 12 years old. That was where I had determined that I wanted to go. And then in the 13th hour, the small liberal arts college in Parkville, Missouri, suburban Kansas City, sent me a letter and said, we got some money for you if you want to come out here and go to school, become a student athlete. And I said, I'm headed to the Midwest. I followed the money. Maybe it was fake. Who knows? Because that decision is really what led me through this improbable journey that I've been on ever since. The listeners are probably going to be curious about this favorite basketball team. I've been a lifelong Atlanta Brave, Atlanta Falcon, and of course, Atlanta Hawk fan. And then after you start living in a place, I became a Kansas City Royal fan, and of course, a Kansas City Chiefs fan after living here. And we do so much work with the ball club here in Kansas City, the great Kansas City Royals. So my allegiance is split. But fortunately, it's an American League, National League thing. And of course, we don't have a professional basketball team here in Kansas City. When I first got here, we had the Kansas City Kings, who are now the Sacramento Kings. But I'm still a big Georgia sports fan, huge Georgia Bulldog fan collegiately. 
the Atlanta Hawks is kind of my NBA team. And so I'm excited about this run that they have right now in the playoffs. Look like they're building something really solid there with a great nucleus of young players. But I chased the basketball from Crawfordville, Georgia to Parkville, Missouri. And who knew that I would make my living in baseball, albeit baseball history. So switching gears a little bit, life, they give you lemons and you got to make lemonade. Last year, undoubtedly, was one of those years. That was not just a small lemon. That was a pretty big lemon. Here was a lot going on. It was the 100th year anniversary of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Tell us a little bit about that. It was the most strangest year that I have ever experienced because of the highs and then lows and then highs as we found a way to make a way. We started the year off in such a triumphant fashion, man. We gathered at the Paseo YMCA where the leagues were formed on February 13th. So February 13th of 2020, we go back into that same old YMCA just around the corner from my office. And we go back to commemorate 100 years of the birth of the Negro Leagues, an incredible milestone. We've got Commissioner Rob Manfred, the Commissioner of Major League Baseball, Xavier James, the Chief Operating Officer of Major League Baseball's Players Association. We've got the Mayor of Kansas City, Quentin Lucas, my dear friend, eight-time Gold Glove winner, Royals Hall of Famer, and now Jackson County Executive Frank White is in attendance, John Sherman, the owner of the Kansas City Royals, Mike Kehoe, the Lieutenant Governor of the state of Missouri, all gathered with me in that historic space to announce our plans for a year-long 100th anniversary celebration. And so at the press gathering, Major League Baseball and the Players Association announced a joint $1 million contribution to the museum. And we rolled out all of our plans for this year-long celebration, which included a national day of recognition for the Negro Leagues. And this was going to be the first time ever that all 30 Major League teams on one day were all going to salute the Negro Leagues. They were going to wear our commemorative patch that we had created for the 100th anniversary. And then we were going to do a tip your cap to the Negro Leagues kind of symbolic ceremony in stadium with players and fans. So this was going to happen initially on June 27th. So now we're off to a flying start. And then less than 30 days later, everything came to a screeching halt, just like that. All of these plans were dashed. All the group gathering things that we had put so much into, we could not do because of a COVID-19 pandemic. Had no idea what the heck COVID-19 was. All of a sudden it was wreaking havoc on everything that we had set up. And this was not only going to be this incredible year-long celebration, it was also going to be the springboard for a substantial fundraising effort for the museum to help create an endowment for this great museum so that it can operate into perpetuity. So there was a lot riding on this celebration. Here we were not being able to execute virtually anything that we had planned. So the field of doom and gloom was swirling all around us, just as it was for people all over the world. We weren't the only one experiencing this kind of drama and having so many other things that we had hoped to do 
be derailed. You know you cannot wallow in self-pity. That would be doing an absolute disservice to all who call the Negro Leagues home. After all, they never cried about the social injustice. They went out and did something about it. So you know you're not really allowed to wallow in self-pity. But man, I'd be lying to you if I told you anything other than the fact that I was doing a little wallowing because they've worked so hard to put this game plan together. Now it's time to execute and you can't, and it's really not any fault of your own. It was this worldwide health crisis. As if that wasn't enough, we move into a realm of social upheaval that was very reminiscent of the 1960s after George Floyd's tragic murder. And the museum found itself right in the middle of it, not in a negative way, because I was probably most proud of the fact that people really started to turn to the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum for thought leadership. And that was with the understanding that this museum is a civil rights museum. It's a social justice museum. It's just seen through the lens of baseball. But again, it is triumph over that adversity. We're right there in the middle of that as well. And at some point, you knew that you had to pick yourself up, dust yourself off, and get back in there and try to figure out a way when there seemingly is no way. And that's exactly what we did, man. We rolled up our sleeves and we went to work. We talked about making lemonade out of lemons, and that was a big sour lemon. We had to just swallow it and keep on going. And that's exactly what we did. And so we came up with the Tip Your Cap to the Negro Leagues virtual campaign that went viral, went absolute viral. When we launched that campaign on June 29th, we launched it with four U.S. presidents tipping their cap. President Obama, Clinton, Bush, and Carter, notable dignitaries like General Colin Powell, transcending athletes like Michael Jordan and Magic Johnson, Billie Jean King, a host of other great notables, all joining us in this effort to pay tribute to the Negro Leagues with a simple tip of the cap. In our sport, there is nothing more honorable that a baseball player can do than to acknowledge with a tip of the cap. And this thing just took off. And then all of a sudden, the level of engagement around the museum was starting to soar. And then we get to ultimately do this National Day of Recognition, albeit there were no fans in the stands, we were still able to host a National Day of Recognition where all the teams took the field wearing our patch. They did ceremonial kinds of things in stadium. Their social media teams were engaging others around the museum and this history. And that engagement level was now, I think, is at an all-time high. And then there was the announcement of a series of commemorative coins that were going to be created by the U.S. Mint, thanks to legislation being passed by Congress last year to authorize the men to create these commemorative coins in recognition of the 100th anniversary. The coins will be released in January of 2022. Naturally, we're tremendously proud to be able to get this because it's so difficult to get under normal circumstances. There was nothing normal about last year. So not only were you talking about a pandemic, but you're also talking about a very contentious 
presidential election year and to be able to get bipartisan legislation across when it was difficult to get the Republicans and the Democrats to agree on anything. And we were able to get that bipartisan legislation passed that will authorize the U.S. Mint to create these coins along with the prestige. If we're able to sell through all of the coins, we will generate some $6 million in support of the museum. And then, of course, in December, when Major League Baseball makes the epic announcement that it was finally long last recognizing the Negro Leagues for exactly what they were, a major league. This was historic. This announcement was long awaited. Some would say long overdue. And it was a perfect way for us to end the year. And we've been riding this wave really ever since. So we did. We went from that period of doom and gloom to completely resurrecting this thing to the point that we are now winning in the midst of the craziness that was coronavirus in March of this year. We turned the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum into a COVID-19 vaccination clinic. We shut down the museum in March of 2020, and we had to shut down for three months. And a year later, almost to the day, we turned the museum into a COVID-19 vaccination clinic, and we vaccinated over 2,000 people here at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. And for me, there was this feeling of vindication. A year from the time that we had shut down, here we were fighting back. Coronavirus had been the bully. Coronavirus took our lunch money every day. And finally, we found a way to fight back. And as we were vaccinating so many people in this community, and we operate in a predominantly African-American community, it was so important that we provide that level of outreach. We were able to take that lemon and turn it into lemonade. I think if you take anything away, when we look at the spirit of the Negro Leagues, that's really what they were all about. They just refused to be denied. We had to embody that spirit. We had to live what our museum is all about. And it was important for me to demonstrate that through my leadership with our team. If my team saw me wallowing, they're going to wallow too. I wanted them to know that everything was going to be okay. We never had any layoffs. We never had any furloughs. When this whole thing went down and we were shutting the place up, I didn't realize it was going to be three months at that time. I went to my board and told them that we were not going to upset the livelihood of our team. We're a small organization, but our team has been so dedicated to the work that we do here. And so my commitment to them was that we were not going to upset their livelihood. When I hung up the phone, I didn't know how the hell I was going to do this. <laughs> As the adage says, the good Lord takes care of babies and fools. And I'm not sure which category I fall in, but I feel like there may be a little bit of divine intervention that has interceded here. And we've been able to this point navigate through the madness that was coronavirus. And, but as I mentioned, the level of engagement around this museum is at an all-time high. And while we didn't get the level of corporate support that we would typically get, the level of individual donations went up maybe three, fourfold. Even at a time when people were struggling themselves, they found a wherewithal to make sure that this organization was supported. And man, it just warms my heart. It fills my heart with tremendous joy that people feel that passionate about the work that we do here. 
we've been tremendously blessed. And that's what motivates us all every single day to just try and build the best museum we possibly can so that people can get a better understanding, hopefully gain an appreciation if they don't already have it, but also be touched by the life lessons that still come in play. This history was a tremendously compelling and inspirational story of tremendous athletes who forced a glorious history in the midst of an inglorious time in American history. But the life lessons that stem from this story may be more important and meaningful and prevalent right now than they ever have been, particularly with what we saw happen in our country socially. So it has really entrenched the position of this museum, particularly in its importance, not only to our great city of Kansas City, but to the nation and to the world. Wrapping things up about legacy, what does legacy mean to you? For me, and I think for our team, we talk about legacy all the time. Because what we talk about is, number one, removing self from the equation. Not the easiest thing to do. We are wired as human beings to be selfish. We want what we want when we want it. And we want stuff and we all want to be successful. We want to make a lot of money. And there's nothing wrong with that. But what I talk about with our team is that we have an opportunity to leave a legacy. And that comes from understanding that this museum is bigger than any of us. But if we do our job properly, we will leave something that will stand the test of time, that future generations will have the opportunity to come here and experience this museum, hopefully grow from that experience. Anytime that you know that you are doing something that is bigger than you are, quite frankly, it is as rewarding and as gratifying a thing as you could possibly do. And that's what motivates us. That's what drives me to want to make sure that the legacy of the Negro League plays on long after there are no more Negro Leaguers to attest to just how special this league really was. There's only a handful of these legendary players still with us. In the not-so-distant future, there's not going to be any. And we knew that from the onset when we started this museum, that it was literally a race against time. And even more so, the fans who saw them play, we're losing them too. And so every time we lose one of them, that window of opportunity closes just a little bit more. And so we want to make sure that the legacy of the Negro Leagues never dies, that it plays in its full glory. And it does so here at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. And that motivates all of us to want to give this place everything that we have so that we don't have to ever worry about this story dying when that last Negro Leaguer leaves the face of this earth. Gracias, Bob, for your passion and dedication to preserving the rich history of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. For all my listeners, don't forget to rate and review the show. Five stars and a little love go a long way. Check the podcast description for more info on where you can find Bob Kendrick and the museum via social media. The next episode will be dropping in two weeks. This gives the Siempre Palante team time to bring you more inspiring stories, culture-driven, focused on familia, overcoming adversity, and legacy. In the meantime, be on the lookout for special live events and bonus content on all my social media platforms. Nos vemos pronto. 
pa'lante. 